Hi, this is Melissa from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and you're listening to Two Broads Talking Politics. Tonight truly is Superbrod's Talking Politics, because unfortunately, Kelly has some laryngitis, so it's just your trusty old host, Sophie, here tonight. But I have a very special guest with me to make two broads, Christine Marsh. She is both the Arizona State 2016 Teacher of the Year and a candidate for State Senate from District 28 in Arizona. Welcome, Christine. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be part of this. Thank you for being here. Can you sort of just give us a little introduction to to yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are and why you are running for state senate in Arizona. Yes, I just started my 27th year of teaching last week. I, as you already said, I'm the 2016 Teacher of the Year. I've got my own two sons who are 23 and 25, and I'm a former foster mother and. The reason I'm running is because while traveling the state as Teacher of the Year, I already knew that things were bleak in Arizona, but that experience made me realize that it's far more bleak than even I had thought. And that experience also provided me the opportunity to spend a whole lot of time with the other state Teachers of the Year from across the nation. And I recognize that it does not have to be this way. Like other states are doing it better and different. So I am running to change things. So can you just sort of tell us a little bit about what the situation is in Arizona about education? You said it was bleak. Can you sort of paint a picture for us? Yeah, we have the fourth highest or second, depending on your source, class size in the nation. We have the lowest elementary school teacher pay second lowest high school teacher pay. We have somewhere between 47 and 52, like even behind D.C., as far as per pupil funding. And I give that range because, again, it depends on your source. But I have not seen us placed above 47. So we do not fund our school very well. We finished the school year with a 2,000 teacher shortage which means that there are roughly 60,000 kids who finished the year without an actual teacher in their class. And that's being very conservative because 30, I do, you know, most of us do not have only 30 kids in our class. So I'm being really conservative by saying 60,000 kids. You know, it, the classrooms are just filled beyond capacity. We have, just at lunch this week, one of my teacher friends was saying that She has physically no more room in her classroom for another desk. So there's going to be one student who has to sit on the floor. Like if all kids are there, somebody's going to be on the floor because there's just no more room. And I, you know, our kids deserve better than that. And what sorts of ideas do you have for how the state Senate could sort of impact education in Arizona? Is it mainly like a funding issue or are there other things that you can be doing? I think the biggest one right now is simple funding. 
that's another thing that I learned through my experience of Teacher of the Year was I was fighting for the entire year. I did an ungodly number of speeches, and it was all about, like, let's just make sure things don't get worse, whereas in other states, those Teachers of the Year were doing productive, positive-moving things like anti-bullying campaigns and music across the curriculum and early childhood literacy, that kind of thing. So back to your question, yeah, the biggest thing before we can even see beyond that is to just get an adequate amount of funding in the classrooms. And then I'd like to go forward. I'd like to see something, some kind of legislation that would reduce class size, for example. I mean, I know Florida does it. Other states have been able to do that. But for right now, we just need, we need dollars in the classroom, period. Tell us a little bit about becoming 2016 Teacher of the Year. Like, sort of how how does that happen, and what is that experience like? My principal nominated me, and once a person is nominated, the onus falls on the person to write about, about 12 to 14 pages of essays answering different prompts about the state of education and you know, what good teaching is and, you know, things like that. Uh, Based on the essays, the judges bring in 10 to interview. And then based on the interviews, the winner is actually chosen. And the experience itself was quite amazing. It was, I'd say, life-changing. We all got to go to the White House, for example, and meet President Obama. We got a bigger platform I mean, and for me, that was, I loved meeting Obama, and we actually got to meet Vice President Biden and his wife, Jill, at their actual house. And I mean, so there were really <sighs> cool experiences like that. But, I, you know, for me, the best part, the most special part was just having that broader platform from which to advocate for teachers and students across the state. Like, I really valued that, and I tried to take advantage of it as much as possible. Like, I did not say no to really any interviews or speaking Mm -hmm. engagements or whatever. Every opportunity that I could use to speak on behalf of teachers and students, I made sure to to do it. And you are running for District 28 in Arizona for the State Senate. Can you tell us a little bit about your district, sort of? What towns and areas are in the district? What What's it like? So my legislative district is one of the most purple in the state. There's a lot of Republicans, a lot of independents, a lot of Democrats. So most of the legislative districts in the state lean really hard one direction or the other. Super red or super blue. So mine is kind of, it's, you know, right pretty much in the middle. We have a very large pocket of what I would consider affluence. Uh, But then we also have some very impoverished areas as well. I mean, we, we have the entire range of socioeconomic status represented by our district. It's a, a high voter turnout district, which is good. I mean, and I think that's Mm -hmm. the work of the legislative district, like for all the years, leading up to now for the last, you know, 10 to 12 years, the amount of door knocking that goes on, the amount of voter engagement. So we usually have 
the first or second highest rate of voting of the 30 districts in the state. Oh, nice. Yeah, no, it's it's great. Uh, I love, you know, I love my legislative district. And I've lived here, other than going to college in California, I've, you know, grown up here, raised my kids here. My roots are very deep in this legislative district. And it looks like the current Republican incumbent, Kate McGee, she was only elected in 2016, and she only won by about 3% of the vote. Correct. Correct. So what do you see sort of as your strategy, as your path to victory? Our path to victory is knocking a lot of doors. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have an amazing field operation. I was actually at our campaign office before coming home to uh, take this call. We are raising a lot of money as well, of course, but we uh, probably, I mean, we do not have any, whatever, delusions that we're going to outraise the Republicans in the race, um, but we are able to knock on a lot of doors and talk to a lot of people. We make a lot of phone calls. I mean, the office that we have is just bustling, and there's former students of mine there and all kinds of young people. I've been mm-hmm. super inspired by that, by the way. I know that's a digression, but I've never in mm-hmm. 27 years of teaching seen this level of engagement from our young folks. And when I say our office, I'm running with Kelly Butler and Aaron Lieberman. They are both running for the House and I'm running for the Senate. So the three of us, we are a cohesive team. Cool. And it looks like you've gotten some pretty high profile endorsements as well. You've been endorsed by Emily's List. You've been endorsed by the Arizona, is it the Fund for Education? Arizona yes. Education Association, that's what it is. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does that mean to you? All of the endorsements are special, but as a teacher, the one from Arizona Education Association was even more special. Mm-hmm. Like that one really means a lot to me. From, from behind the scenes, something that people don't realize is, oh my gosh, candidates, we get so much paperwork to fill out for all of those endorsements. Like, it is incredible. That was something that nobody warned me about. I did not know how much writing and surveys uh, that we had to fill out, which is fine. I'm not saying that as a complaint. I'm just saying it as I just didn't know that part. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned knocking on a lot of doors. In in the process of talking to voters in your in your district, what sorts of issues have they brought up to you as being really important to them? Across the board is education. Mm -hmm. And I often wonder if it's because all of my literature says, you know, teacher of the year and, but talking to all the other canvassers of whom we have, you know, so many, that seems to be consistent, not just with me, but yeah, that is, I'd say 96% of the people I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'd have to actually run the stats, but just as mm-hmm. a guess, it's it's got to be somewhere around, you know, 95, 96% of the people think that education is the number one issue here in Arizona. Mm-hmm. After that comes health care, immigration, the environment, the economy. And those all are probably pretty closely bunched together. Mm-hmm. Um you know, criminal justice, 
which is also on our like survey of, you know, the data we're collecting at the doors rarely comes up, which surprised me. I thought that one would come up a little bit more, but, Mm -hmm. um, and the environment comes up more than I had expected, which is good. I'm very glad that our voters are very in tune with what's happening, you know, with the environment. And that might look different. I mean, one voter might say, we need more sustainable energy. Somebody else might specifically mention solar energy. Somebody else might mention the fact that we are heading into a drought and, you know, our water issues, which are indeed very pressing. But I consider those all under that broader umbrella of the environment. Yeah, I was going to say, don't you in Arizona have some some water issues? I know when I, I lived in New Mexico, a little bit across the border from Arizona, and we had a lot of water issues when I lived in New Mexico. Yes, it's already an issue, and uh, we are looking at some serious problems within the next five to six mm-hmm. years. We're looking at some serious issues if we don't do something and act, you know, don't do something to slow down our use of water. Well, is there anything else you want to make sure that we talk about, about your campaign or about, you know, education in general as, as an issue? There's two things. I don't know why people don't recognize the importance of students. Like every year with every class, I think to myself that the future president could be in my room because the future president is sitting in someone's classroom right now. And, you know, use that as a metaphor. Of course, it had a whole different level of meaning for our current president, but whatever, nonetheless, <laughs> I, um, I, and it just seems to me that that is something that too many people are not paying attention to. Like our kids are going to grow up and be our president and our doctors and our, our lawyers and our, you know, all of our healthcare providers, our accountants, I mean, you name it, they're going to be it. And why we wouldn't do absolutely everything to ensure them having a successful future, I just simply don't understand. Because their successful future is also our successful future. Mm-hmm. And I just don't see nearly enough people who seem to respect that idea. Well, and you would think that since the vast majority of us have been students before, you would think education would be something that touches everyone and that is really interesting to everyone. Correct. Or at least the public education system. I mean, in Arizona, the big push is the privatization of public Mm. education. And, you know, I'm a, a staunch believer in every single kid getting a really good education. I I don't mean to say that school choice isn't a positive thing because it can be. It's just not Mm -hmm. the way it's manifesting itself here in Arizona Mm -hmm. where too many politicians who claim to be interested in education really mean private education. You said there was a second thing you wanted to talk about. Yeah, the whole reason I'm running, yes, my students and my own sons and my foster kids are the catalyst for all of this. But the bottom line reason of why I'm running is that we have a chance of flipping the Senate mm-hmm. and 
flipping the Senate will be an absolute game changer for Arizona. And that is indeed why I'm taking on what seems sometimes like an impossible task of teaching full-time and running, you know, in a competitive race is because I really, really want the compromise and negotiation that will come at the Capitol with flipping one of the chambers. And the House, that's such a long shot, but the Senate, we can actually do. That's three seats. We need to pick up three seats. That's it. And that will change the state. That's exciting. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I don't think I would run if the Senate was already in Democratic control. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not running because I had some deep-seated desire to be a state senator. I didn't. I'm running because I really can envision what this state could look like if everybody at the Capitol actually had to negotiate and compromise with each other. What is that experience like running for office and also teaching full-time? Is it exhausting? It is. Yes, it is so (laughs) beyond exhausting. I get up in the three o'clock hour. There will be days and not like just a few days. There will be days where I'm up at 2.30 grading essays before, you know, before school even starts. What makes it possible, though, is that I've got just this amazing team who pick, they will pick up pieces or pick up like some of, carry some of my burden because they all know. I mean, I said from the very beginning, I can only do this if everybody knows and everybody's on the same page with the idea that my own current students absolutely cannot suffer. They cannot pay the price of me running. So yes, it's terribly exhausting. There are long, long weeks, but I also have this amazing team of people who make it happen. They allow this to happen. I could not do this. It would be impossible to do this without the team I've got. And if any of our listeners want to check out your campaign, volunteer, maybe, you know, donate to your campaign, how can they do that? They can go on my website, which is christineportermarsh.com, all one word, Christine with a C-H, christineportermarsh.com, and then everything is on there. Volunteer link, contribution link. Yeah, everything's on there. Great. Well, thank you so much for for joining me. This was really exciting. I didn't know that Arizona State Senate was so close to flipping, and that's that's going to have to be one of the things we watch and keep an eye on this year. Yeah, it is that close, and it cannot happen without the seat I'm running for. Excellent. This is the most mathematically viable seat to flip. So, yeah, pressure's on. Yeah, I was going to say, no pressure, right? (laughs) Pressure's on, but we're getting it done. and So, yeah, it's exciting. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. I think what you two ladies are doing is pretty cool, pretty awesome. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. We're two academic sisters. And we host a podcast called What's Her Name? 
What's Her Name podcast tells you the stories of fascinating women that you've never heard of. We're unearthing the histories of really interesting women that have slipped through the cracks of our collective history. We add era-appropriate music. We interview really fascinating experts, everyone from professors to authors to the manager of a brothel museum. <laughs> we cover it all. So give it a listen. What's her name? Podcast.com. Hey everyone, this is Kelly, and I'm here in this segment with Carrie Hicks, who is running for the state senate in Oklahoma District 40. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you for joining me. So maybe you could start just by telling us a little bit about your background, who you are, and why you've decided to run for the state senate. Sure. I'm a teacher and a mom and um, a lifelong Okie. And so we've just seen in Oklahoma the last 10 years um, some really And I've been teaching for seven. So um, kind of seeing and witnessing those cuts firsthand in the classroom has just been really disheartening as we think about kind of the long-term implications of, of where we're going, I guess, as a state and how that kind of translates to not only our lack of being able to recruit and retain our current certified um, educators, but also, you know, having some of those, um, you know, those kids are graduating and um, are are not getting a a quality uh, education. And so kind of witnessing this and watching this and, and looking at our political landscape, I just was was really upset and really frustrated. And we were actually at the point where we were either going to need to to move so that I could get a cost of living on our teacher salary or to to stay and fight. And so I decided to to go ahead and run for office because I I want to be a part of the solution and making sure that our, our kids are being taken care of. And I have a political science degree. That's my background, even though I've been teaching for seven years. And so I just felt like it was it was time now to kind of um, stand up as that politically educated teacher and make sure that we have champions inside our state legislature that are are actually taking care of kids and taking care of public education. I wanted to ask a little bit about Oklahoma politics in general. Of course, I knew that Oklahoma was a, a red state, was fairly Republican state, but I was shocked to see just how overwhelmingly Republican the state legislature is. The state Senate has like a super, super majority yeah. <laughs> of, of Republicans. Although in uh, 2017 special elections, a couple of seats flipped flipped back to the Democrats. But the seat you're running for, even though this is in Oklahoma City, is still held by a Republican. So are the are the cities in Oklahoma any more Democratic liberal than the rest of the state? What do you see going on there? Yes. And, and in fact, I mean, we've been kind of looking at the data as far as you know, the trends, I guess, politically over, you know, the last several election cycles. And um, this Senate seat that I'm running for is actually the most Democratic Senate seat not held by a Democrat. So what that means is there are five House seats that are inside of this Senate seat, and three of those are actually held by Democrats. And one is is an, an open seat, and, and we hope um, that it will also flip. So it's it's been trending um blue in this part of Oklahoma City for several election cycles um 
and the the voter registration numbers are are kind of interesting in in this area as well. And I I think that's part that this particular part of the city is kind of being. I guess the next generation is kind of moving in and flipping and re- rehabbing houses. And so the things that are most important, I, you know, I think to young families like mine are making sure that we have good quality public education. And so, so it, it has, you know, kind of even moved into, I would even say a more moderate Republican as well. Yeah, and so the the primaries for this seat were very interesting. The incumbent actually lost his primary on the Republican yeah. side, mm-hmm. uh, and the Democratic primary was very looked very close. Uh, was very hard fought, but more Democratic primary votes were cast than Republican primary votes in this district. Yeah. So that seems to be at least a good sign. Not everybody votes mm-hmm. in the primaries, but uh, with two contested races, that seems like something you can look toward. Do you know anything about why the incumbent Republican was primaried out? You know, I, I mean, I think there there are a lot of theories. Um, you know, ultimately, I, I I think it was maybe a combination of three issues. He, you know, was was very outspoken on on a number of things, um, having a medical background and was actually the only doctor in the Senate. And so he, he came out strong against medical marijuana in the state question that was on the ballot for our state's primary elections. And so in Senate District 40, um, the approval rate was actually at 69 percent in favor. And that was, I mean, higher than um, most places in the state. So I think he wasn't really in tune with that community and, and, it, and maybe he didn't communicate his message well to that community as to why he was so opposed. So I, I think that was one part of it. Um, I know he wasn't super receptive to teachers during the walkout for nine days when we were at the Capitol. He, he held some town hall meetings that I think he was hoping to be more efficient with this time. But Unfortunately, that led to the perception, you know, that he wasn't willing to take one-on-one meetings to discuss the issue. And that's, I mean, ultimately how I even ended up in this race was the previous year um, during legislative session. I mean, he never, never responded to my emails, never called me back and, and in my opinion was kind of unwilling to discuss education issues. Um, and so I think you know, on a large scale um, during the walkout. I mean, that's kind of how teachers felt, you know, treated in that regard. And then another really interesting issue um, as a medical doctor, he was really pushing for some strong vaccine laws. So there was a a big community push uh, back against that in removing some choices for parents. And so I think those three factors kind of all together, maybe, you know, created the the perfect storm, so to speak, to I mean, it was just such a large margin. I I, I don't think anybody anticipated that he was going to be defeated by that that much. So it looks like you've been doing a lot of door knocking, going around, talking to the people of the district. In addition to education, can you tell me the kinds of things that that you're hearing from people about what their concerns are? Sure. You know, I I mean, um, healthcare continues to be a very personal and very important conversation. Having access to you know basic services and prevention, I think, is just so important in our community. And you know, the affordability of that right now is just it. 
it, it's not there. Um, and people are very frustrated by that. It feels like our premiums continue to increase annually and, you know, our services for whatever reason are being, you know, in decline, so to speak. And so making sure that we have access to affordable health care is, is very important. And my son actually has type 1 diabetes. So managing his chronic illness, I mean, it, it's um, it's very expensive. And so I think, you know, that resonates on the doors because, I mean, it's it's not a unique situation. I mean, we just happen to be that family that's also, you know, struggling with that issue. You know, and, and outside of that, I mean, I think there's a, a, a large majority that are very concerned with um, criminal justice reforms. Um, we've the highest incarceration rate of women in the world now and um, second of men in the country. And so it's it stands to reason that we've we've really got to get serious about some criminal justice reforms to um, look at, you know, why we're incarcerating individuals um, or, you know, if there's a way to move towards rehabilitating and, um, you know, investing in mental health courts and drug courts that would absolutely bring that number of incarceration rates down in, in I mean, Overall, it would save a ton of money for our state, but I see the impact of that in the classroom when kids are separated from their parents who are, are serving sentences. So, you know, there's just some really long-term implications for criminal justice reforms that people are, are eager to talk about. We had earlier in the year been thinking about doing a couple of episodes about teachers and, and the walkouts that were happening around the country. And we found a reluctance among some teachers to to talk about politics that they've been hearing that they shouldn't be political as teachers. And I was wondering, there seems to be a growing number of teachers around the country who are running for office. And if you could talk at all to that, that tension of, you know, often teachers not being political and yet politics touching so closely on education and, and really what happens in the classroom. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really narrow path to walk, <laughs> to be super honest. You know, our career is directly impacted by our state government. And so I think that's what, I mean, it, it just got to the point of, I mean, it's just ridiculousness that we weren't allowed to have an opinion or to have a voice around that issue that is so, I mean, it's just integral to our, our survival. And, and I mean, I, I've been in the classroom for seven years. I have two master's degrees to teach. And, and I mean, my take home pay is $29,000 annually. Um, so when we, when we're talking about, you know, our career, I mean, I, I mean it in a very personal way. I mean, our salaries, um, directly reflect the budget cuts that our state government has been, um, you know, implementing, you know, mid-year cuts, annual cuts. It just seems like every time we turn around, our budgets are shrinking. And so, you know, I, th I think people, you know, rightfully so are, are claiming that voice and saying no more. You know, we've been we've been silent. We've been optimistic. We've been hopeful that the problems would turn around and fix themselves. But but they're not. And the walkout in Oklahoma actually happened even after our salary schedule had been you know bumped and they had already dedicated revenue. Um, there was some unsurety of whether that would actually go through because, you know, we've had 
reasons to mistrust our state government from things that they've done to teachers and education in the past. So I think people were were nervous that that might actually not even go through. And thankfully, there there was a group that had um, launched the anti-tax initiative right after the passage and approval of those salary raises and the revenue um, that would be attached to it. And it was, you know, struck down basically and, and didn't gain the traction. So those that salary increase did go through, but um, I mean, the walkout was in response to the fact that there was not enough revenue dedicated back to our classrooms. And so, I mean, as the lowest funded, <laughs> you know, uh, profession, I guess, in the country, um, getting the, the lowest salaries and still continuing to, to walk out. I mean, it was you're looking at some of the most self-sacrificing individuals in the country who um, are in this profession for all the right reasons, which are to take care of kids and make sure that they get a quality education. And so, I mean, it just I think you're seeing that nationwide now that, you know, teachers have, have kind of have had have had it um, with the political games um, with, I mean, really what our career is aimed at and making sure that every child has a quality and free and fair uh, public education. Well, so this, this may answer part of <laughs> the following question because the compensation for a state senator in Oklahoma looks fairly low to me, but I, it's shocking that it's more than what you make as a teacher. Mm-hmm. So is is the state Senate designed to be a full-time position in Oklahoma? Is this meant to be a part-time position? What, it, it's not entirely clear uh, just based on compensation, and I know it's different in different states. So what does that look like in Oklahoma? You know, that's a, an excellent point and kind of one that um, has been, you know, frustrating for me in seeking this office. You know, I, I think it Again, you have to straddle that fine line because if it is, you know, designed, you know, to only be a part time, you know, income, then ultimately teachers um, were not allowed to be a public education you know, servant um, in the classroom and also um, hold office. So we have to resign our, our position um, in education in order to run. So if it's not a a quote unquote cost of living, then I, I feel like it it kind of narrows the scope of who can actually seek to hold that office, um, which makes me nervous because, it, it, I mean, it would allude to being only the independently wealthy um, to be able to run. And so thankfully, a little bit, you know, of an increase uh, of salary um, over over my teaching um, that I was bringing home because otherwise I wouldn't be able um, to make that sacrifice and and to seek office because I I, I wouldn't be able to um, take care of my family. So I feel like that's a a question worth even asking our, our state, you know, truly who, who is available and, and, you know, can seek office. Is it supposed to be a full-time position or not? I mean, I know we're only in session for um, a couple short months out of the year, but there are lots of, there's a lot of work to be done. So to me, it stands to reason that it it needs to be a full-time position right now um, so that we can actually, you know, move some mountains that I feel like have been neglected for far too long. You mentioned your family. You have three little kids. They're pretty little. What do they think about you running for office? You know, I mean, they're, I think they're confused. Right <laughs> um, you know, it's just been a revolving door, um, thankfully, of, of really great and dedicated volunteers. So 
my days, I, you know, spend several hours in the morning um, at the campaign office doing fundraising calls. And then I have basically three shifts throughout the day of um, drivers that, that come to the house and pick me up. And then we, we go out and we knock neighborhoods. And so it's eight to 10 hours a day on the doors for five days a week um, at this point in the campaign. So I think they're just confused as to why, you know, we've got so many um excited and enthusiastic people coming by the house to pick up mom and she's going out to knock doors. And, you know, I don't really know that they know what that means, but they've been absolutely, you know, just one of the lifelines to this campaign um, because they just make it so worth it in the end, knowing that I'm not only fighting for all of Oklahoma's kids and getting what we need for public education, but three very important reasons to not lose my way in this campaign, because I think that could be really easy to forget, you know, why, why you're running and, and why you feel like you're the best person to to hold that office because it, I mean, it, it does, it becomes all consuming. Um, so to be able to, to come home to some snuggles and smiles and high fives and, you know, with my, my three little ones, I think that really helps me stay grounded as to, you know, what this campaign has always been about, which is taking care of our working class families. My kids would probably be jealous. They really want me to run for office. I think most of they really? them, they want to be in like campaign ads and stuff. So <laughs> Oh, funny. Well, my son, he's he's now four. He's, I mean, he's very very smart, and it, it just it never ceases to amaze me how much he is actually, you know, picking up from conversations that my husband and I are having. And and one night, you know, I was joking um, with my husband, who's, I mean, he's been more than happy to stay home with the kids and not out in a hundred degree heat knocking doors. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I had just made the comment, you know, it's nice weather, you know, do you want to go out knocking doors tonight? And my son, not even missing a beat, he looked at my husband and was like, no, daddies can't go. That's mommy's work. And I just, <laughs> I loved it. You know, I mean, I'm, I feel like we're teaching our kids some really good lessons on, you know, what it means to set a goal and work towards that goal and um, making sure that you're, you know, um, putting all the work in and the effort. I mean, they're, they're seeing their mom really, you know, work towards something pretty special. So um, hopefully that stays with them for a lifetime. That's excellent. My children are pretty convinced that women can't cook. And I, I'm perfectly happy letting them continue to think <laughs> that. <laughs> It's a balance, right? Exactly. They also think men can't do laundry. So, uh, you know, somewhere along the line, I've got to straighten them out a little bit. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that we talk about, uh, about you or your campaign? Sure. You know, I I think really what I've witnessed, I guess, um, in this leg of the race, which I mean, post primary, which I mean, we've we've kind of switched gears on on who we're talking to when we're door knocking, you know, is just that as a country and as a state, um, we've got to get back towards, you know, having those meaningful face to face conversations. I think it's so scary um, to be identified by a label at this point in our current political climate. You know, I don't know how many times a day I probably say, you know, I just, you know, I think we've got to put people over party and really start connecting and making sure that, you know, we're 
we're working across the aisle and we're collaborating um, because the fact of the matter is, you know, when when in Oklahoma, our parties have been so divided um, and there has been little collaboration actually done to achieve anything. You know what that means is that I mean, the majority of us who probably identify somewhere in the middle of all of that are, are getting left behind. So I just think as as a state and as a as a nation, you know, we really need to be looking at what it means to, you know, have some of these critical conversations in a respectful manner. Um, and unfortunately, I feel like social media has, has been detrimental to that. You know, we've lost that um, art of dialogue and being able to, you know, agree or disagree respectfully on any issue. And so in my classroom, you know, with nine and 10 year olds in fourth grade, you know, I've seen that firsthand and in, in really helping them to understand and instill that, you know, if you have an issue with someone, you need, you need to be able to articulate it and explain how it makes you feel and why. Because I, I think that's going to be so, so very crucial in moving forward as as a state in Oklahoma and again, as a, as a country and making sure that we're really getting back to um, what it means to take care of our fellow man. I love that. And if our listeners would like to learn more about you or support your campaign, how can they do that? Sure. Um, our website is just my full name, com, and that's spelled C-A-R-R-I-H-I-C-K-S.com. We're obviously looking for volunteers, um, you know, boots on the ground here in Oklahoma, but also, um, you know, we've we've had some volunteers from out of state. Some of my colleagues um, that have left Oklahoma to teach in other states have been great about doing some virtual phone banking for us. So there are some out of state volunteer opportunities. Um, if my campaign resonates and you want to help us that way. But obviously, um, campaigns, unfortunately, are are very expensive to run. So this campaign has been fueled by small donors. Our average gift is less than $100. So, you know, every little bit truly adds up. And if anybody would be um, inclined to donate, they can just go to carriehicks.com slash donate. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. I'm thrilled with the idea that Oklahoma could start to turn a little bit more blue and uh, especially uh, with the idea of getting teachers into office and moms of young children into office. I think that's so important in in changing the dialogue and really helping us get public education back in shape. Thank you so much. I I 100% agree. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you. Absolutely. It was lovely speaking with you. Thank you so much for thinking of me. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm Rachel. We're sisters. And we like to talk about books. But not the kind you talk about in English class. Sci-fi, fantasy, YA. All the good stuff. You like Harry Potter? We've got you covered. Just don't tell the Ministry of Magic. We might be breaking the Statue of Secrecy. How about Frank Herbert or John Scalzi? Don't forget Octavia Butler, Lainey Taylor, Rainbow Rowell, Marie Lou. Hey, don't give all our episode ideas away. All right, I guess you'll just have to listen to our show to find out more. Unassigned Reading. We discuss the books you are never going to talk about in English class. I am one of your co-hosts, Sophie, and tonight I'm here with Craig Hoxie. He is a teacher, and he is running for House District 23 in Oklahoma. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Can you tell us a little bit sort of about how you came to be running for Oklahoma State Assembly? 
Yes. So I'm running for the Oklahoma House of Representatives, and this all started basically four months ago during our our teacher walkout that received so much national publicity. Mm-hmm. I was one of the people who was actually engaged in a march from Tulsa to Oklahoma City, so 110 miles, uh, marching down Route 66. And during that process, came to realize that there was more to being involved in politics than just talking about it all the time than just going to the polls. And at some point, people had to step up and run for what they believed in. And so I decided during the course of that walk and finalized the decision in the days immediately afterwards that I was going to go ahead and file for office because we were not receiving satisfactory answers. Tell us a little bit about that walkout. I know it made national news, but not all our listeners might might know all the details. Sort of how did it start and how did it end up? Well, we had not received any pay raises here in the state of Oklahoma for Mm -hmm. a decade or more. And we've been suffering a uh, drain of our qualified teaching professionals to the surrounding states who offer significantly more pay. We have burgeoning classroom sizes. Our support staff have also not received pay raises. Mm -hmm. So it just all reached a point where something had to be done. And so the legislature had been bandying about a few ideas. They presented us uh, their solution, and we found the solution to be inadequate. Mm -hmm. And so the decision was made that we would stage a walkout um, with the support of our districts. In fact, my my own superintendent was walking next to me most of the march. Mm -hmm. And basically, yeah, we spent two weeks out of the classroom uh, at the state capitol or on the road just trying to get our state legislature to do something more, to do something about classroom sizes, to do something about our support personnel, to do Mm -hmm. something about the other state workers who also haven't received any pay raises in a decade. And long story short, they didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. At the and at the end of that two weeks, we decided rather than making the students suffer, or moving graduation dates and things like that, that we would go back to work. Uh, we would finish up the school year, and as many of us stepped up and decided to run for office during that ter- period of time. Well, it's disappointing that you didn't get the funding that you needed, but it's really exciting that we're seeing so many teachers in Oklahoma running for office now. It is very exciting. Um, there are teachers who've done it in the past. Uh, we had a, a small teacher caucus in the 2016 elections. Uh, we had a little bit of success with that. But this time around, I think we're going to see a very large number of teachers uh, be elected. Um, several of them are the front runners of their races. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we're going to see some big change. Speaking of that change, can you tell us a little bit sort of about what you plan to do if elected for education? What are your ideas? Is it is it mainly just increasing funding for education or are there other ideas that you have? Well, there are two major ideas. Funding is, of mm-hmm. course, uh, paramount. We have to restore uh, some tax cuts that the current legislature uh, put into place over the last few years that have done nothing but damage not only education, but every public service that the state offers. Mm -hmm. And so we have to restore those tax cuts. We have to to get our funding back up to um, adequate levels so that we can pay for things in the state. As far as educational reform, there is a lot of questions in the state about accountability. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so, you know, we have, of course, as many states are dealing right now, we're dealing with over-testing. We're dealing with massive amounts of stress put on the students. Uh, so mm-hmm. rather than letting them be in a place where they can discover and learn, they're in a place where they're being trained to be test takers to perform. And so I think we'd like to see uh, a lot of that um, movement go away. I think we'd like to to take school back to the time when students could learn and explore and discover. Mm-hmm. And I would also like to see local, some more local controls in school districts so that schools can offer programs that meet the needs of their particular communities mm-hmm. rather than everyone fitting one single mold of performance of um, uh, one single curriculum that doesn't necessarily fit the future that that community needs or, the, or what that student wants. Mm-hmm. Um, now, having said that, I mean, yeah, we have to have standards. There are 